Welcome to In the Pines, a monthly podcast covering the mysterious, weird, and sometimes unbelievable stories that happen in the place where people love to find solace, the great outdoors. My name is Pox Holiday, And I am Nikki. And hello, friends. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're both delirious at this point because it's almost, well, it is seven o'clock at night and um, fun. (laughs) Well, you... Make fun, fun of the that Russian accent, and uh, I, the thing that I've been addicted to lately have been uh, videos of people catching people in scams, uh-huh. and uh, and so yeah, there's a couple of them that are like these helpful guys that that are trying to help people like prevent them from getting scammed, and they have these ways of breaking into the phone calls. Oh yeah, where they and, hack into them uh, and stuff. I watched one of those the other day, and I was like, damn. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so, but, like, every once in a while, like, a guy will break in and be like, please, hang up, do not talk to this man. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, a really nice Russian guy, but he's like, please, hang up, this man is a scammer, do not talk to him. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I mean, I'd be sitting on the other end, like, uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm going to listen to you, because like, it does sound sketchy, what? but, like, <laughs> how did you get in here, bro? Who are you? So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've I've watched way too many of those uh, lately, and like even convinced my wife to watch a few, and she was like, "Wait, show me more, show me more." <laughs> oh. I tell you what, my what? my crack has been. Um, you're gonna kick me in the ass for this, probably, because you're gonna be like, "Really?" Is my happy place has been watching outdoor backpacking videos on YouTube. <laughs> Yeah, like you're yeah, like yeah. good god woman come on but it just <laughs> it relaxes me i don't know what it is about them but it's just like maybe it's because it's like pro- fall is when i really like to go hike a lot mm-hmm. because i'm a chunky girl so i don't like to really hike too much in the summer because then i end up like a sweaty gross mess <laughs> and i'm just like this is awful but pro- fall is like prime hiking season for me personally and It was literally like, what? I swear the day, I don't know about down there, but like September 22nd, it was like fall said, hello, here I am. Let's drop 20 degrees. And it's been like so nice since up here. It did. Oh, and I'm just like, oh, I really want to go hiking. And I just haven't had a chance because my work schedule has been nuts. And then I'm also teaching a course on Sundays. And so it's like. Well, um, if I can't have my Sundays to go hike right now, then I guess this is what I'm going to do when I get done. So <laughs> is watch other people hike and backpack, but whatever. I, I, I used to work with someone who really watched a couple of them like intently and yeah. would talk to me about them <laughs> and would say like, well, Stephanie said that she does this. And I'm like, who's Stephanie who? again? She's like. <laughs> You know, the, the the one on YouTube that lives in the RV, you know, that lives in the tiny house that she tows behind, a, you know, a Transit Connect, you know. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. So she, but they're all these different people who go hiking and they're all, it's always amazing how they're always also all good looking. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, the one that I've been really hooked on for actually a few months now, it's like, um, what is it? It's called Miranda Goes Outside. And she, it was like a series she did because she works for REI. And so she was mm-hmm. like their 
I don't know, like outdoor web person or something anyways. And now she's just got her own channel, but I'm just like, I actually really enjoy it. Cause she's super nerdy and stuff and she's just pretty chill, but I don't know. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's me just wishing I was doing that instead of being stuck behind a desk. So or <laughs> teaching. Yeah. But, Oh, yeah. but what that I mean, makes me think, have you ever seen, have you heard about the, what is it? The Berkeley marathons? Or the Barkley Marathons? No. Oh, my God. So, it's this... I think it's either in Tennessee. But it, yeah. It's either Tennessee or North Carolina is where it takes place. But it's this guy that does like a... Um, I think it's like a... Hundred and some mile ultra marathon. And what it is, you have to do like... X amount of laps on this crazy ass course through like briars and bam brambles and like i mean huh. it's just nuts up hills down hills part of it goes through like an old prison property um hold on i gotta look it up so i can tell you the correct name i think it's the barkley marathons but there's a couple of different like um documentaries about it yeah the barkley marathons it's insane but it's just this dude who is not a hiker he's like a crazy rabid chain smoker created this and it's 100 miles total and they have to do five laps that are 20 miles each of this and it's i mean check it out sometime because are you saying barkley as in charles barkley yeah yeah okay yeah okay. but check it out it's nuts and i think only a handful of people have actually finished it over the like 20 some years he's been doing it so huh but it's insane so that's a good wow. one. If you uh, ever get the wanderlust bug and you're like, oh, I love the outdoors and hiking and maybe I want to do an ultra marathon. Uh, just watch that and it'll change your fucking mind in a minute. That's for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, one of the oldest outdoor uh, adventure triathlons in the world, I believe, from what I understand, or, or in the United States, uh, is takes place just a few miles down the road from me. Uh-huh. It's a one mile flat water swim. Uh, I forgot how long the run is. And then the final step is you paddle a three person canoe by yourself. Oh, God. Down the little Tennessee River. Jeez. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I, I, I never did it. I, I should have yeah. uh, when I was young and, 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 and healthy. Yeah, it's it's one it, it's 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 super old. Yeah. Um, and, and I forgot how I forgot how many how many it's like either like the sixties, seventies, something like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's it's just crazy. But it's in a very interesting area down the road from me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Hint, hint. Oh, okay. Is this a hint? Hint deals with your story. Hint, hint possibly. Uh, hey. Deals with the. Yeah. <laughs> Look at us looping our our initial convo that we do at the beginning into the story. Da da da. Absolutely by accident. Nice. Well, on that note, shall we get started? Because you have told me this is going to be a, a quite the ride in uh, a yeah. doozy. <laughs> <laughs> so when you told me because i know that i messaged you the other day and i was like uh is there a place in particular because you told me like three places right off and then you told me this first one that i'm going to talk about and you're like hey by the way check out this other one so i'm going to start with the first location you told me about to check into which was 
which is Murphy, North Carolina. Um, so a little backstory on Murphy. Um, it is the county seat of Cherokee County in North Carolina, United States, America. Um, it's situated at the where the Hiawassee and Valley Rivers meet. And it is the westernmost county seat in the state of North Carolina, which I did not know. And it's 360 miles away from the state capital of North Carolina, which is in Raleigh. Population of Murphy back at the 2010 census was 1,627 people. So, little backstory on it. The town of Murphy had originally been part of the homelands for the Cherokee people. Um, and they knew this site along the Hiawassee River as, I'm going to butcher this, Tyanusi-yi? Yeah, Tyanusi-yi. Um, they had a legend about a giant leech named the Tyanusi that lived in the river there. Hmm. The trading path, which was later called the Unicoi Turnpike, passed by the future site of what is now Murphy. Um, and what this did, it connected the lands of the Cherokee um, that were east of the mountains with what were known to European colonists as overhill towns of Tennessee. So after, you know, white people started coming in doing their damn thing, they named the site Huntington after A.R.S. Hunter. Um, and he established the first trading post prior to 1828. And that's where he would trade with the Cherokee um, and other early European American settlers. He was also appointed as the settlement's first postmaster and created their first post office there. Early Americans later renamed the settlement as Murphy for North, North Carolina politician Archibald Murphy. And he was influential in educational advances for the people of North Carolina in the early 19th century. The original spelling of the town was supposed to be M-U-R-P-H-E-Y, but the E got lost somewhere along in history as what usually happens with most names and places. They'll lose a letter here and there and all that good stuff. On a sad note, in 1836, during the removal of the Cherokee Indians um, in the event known as the Trail of Tears, the United States Army built Fort Butler in what is current Murphy. And Fort Butler was used as the main collection point by the government for Cherokee east of the mountains. And from Fort Butler, the Cherokee were taken over the mountains on the Unicoi Turnpike to the main internment camps at Fort Cass, which is now current uh, Charleston, Tennessee, um, prior to their forcible removal to the territory west of the Mississippi River. Awesome place. I was about to say, not much else on it that I really <laughs> awesome. want to cover. That was like the main part of Murphy that I kind of really wanted to dig into just because it was yeah. a, a big stop um, in the Trail of Tears, unfortunately. So so now we're going to move on to the other thing you told me to check into, which is the Bartram Trail. Now, this is going to be super brief um because there's a lot of there's actually a lot of pretty good info on the Bartram Trail but I'm literally going to cover just like the uber basics. So, Bartram Trail is a national recreational trail that follows the route of the naturalist William Bartram um that he took during his visit from 1773 through 1777. Um about 80 miles of the trail is actually located in North Carolina, but only a short section of it from the I can never pronounce this. Is it Nantahala? Nantahala? 
Nantahala. Nantahala. Okay. Nantahala. From the Nantahala River up to Chioa Bald. And it's located within the Chioa Ranger District. The Bartram Trail is actually a series of Bartram memorials, um, including trails, um, Bartram heritage sites, gardens, heritage centers, and heritage cities. And the Bartram Conference Organization um, has worked with trail societies and garden clubs who have built and marked hundreds of miles of trails for hiking and canoeing. The conference has also identified more than 50 Bartram heritage sites in seven states. So this trail actually runs through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Alabama, Missy, Missy, good gosh, Mississippi, and Louisiana. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, it's not like, so in the traditional sense of trail, you think like, north to south route east to west route you know all that good stuff it's more like a kind of like a if you can say it it doesn't it go like a true like mm-hmm. traditional route um hence why it's kind of like all over the place there there's like one part in south carolina where you go north a very far distance only to basically like a- hook a left <laughs> hook another left and go south for about 50 miles yeah. and then hang a right and then they hang another right and go about another it's like yeah. it just looks like two peaks and you're like why, why well and why i kind of want to say it's more like an, yeah, but yeah, a no. zigzag if anything but then i don't feel like that's the right term but it kind of <clears throat> is so mm-hmm. um but that's the kind of the short super short extremely short version of the bartram trail for you um, sorry, it's not much. This one I was kind of like, oh, we're just going to stick to super, super simple since it's going to be a uh, wild ride. <laughs> well, to get to give people an idea of like how far out in North Carolina it is, when I was in, I believe, fourth or fifth grade, there was a competition at my school uh, in a little town outside of Raleigh where they had counted how many they had counted the interior of a baseball mm-hmm. field that was fenced in and how many laps it was it took to equal a mile and they basically every morning when you got to when you got to school and also during uh you know certain times you would go out there and walk these laps and trying to build up the most laps to go from Mantio oh, okay. to Murphy and Mantio is a town uh, in Dare County that's named after uh, one of oh. the Native Americans that uh, yeah. were taken back. Mantio. Uh, uh, it was is it? Uh, oh gosh, I, my wife and I were just talking about it the other day. Sanquiz, San, 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 San San something okay. like that in Mantio. There was a uh, there were t- there were two. <laughs> we were we were one. Well, yeah, it, it was. They were taken back over, and it was there was a we were seeing something about a similar story that gotcha. had something to do with the pilgrims, um, where they took people as well back to like go hey looky here, um, Real but anyway, quick. Um, but that was uh, that so Dare th- County they, yeah because I'm not familiar on my West Virginia or West Virginia, North Carolina County is Dare County on the coast is that right. Okay. Dare County is yeah. I, I should have clarified. Dare Dare County is basically just south of where, like okay. Norfolk and uh, Virginia Beach, like that kind of area cuts over to North yeah, Carolina. Okay. And Duck yeah. So and just Mantio north of like Nags Head like area and stuff, right? Nor- or is 
Okay. The far northeastern, yeah, the far no- furthest northeastern part to okay. the southwesternmost gotcha. part in Mur- Murphy, and and there there actually is a town west okay. of Murphy, but a very small one. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, and uh, something that happened while we were doing this is I, I always since I am running two computers whenever we're doing this <laughs> one for my since I have a weak internet connection I always turn the internet connection off on my big old computer that I read off of since I'm old <laughs> I need big things to read off of now and uh, I noticed when I turned off my uh, my Wi-Fi that there was just just in case people didn't think that I lived <laughs> in Appalachia uh, <laughs> they didn't think I lived out in the, out in the middle of nowhere somebody's Wi-Fi is hollering at you <laughs> holler that's awesome. <laughs> I should take a I yeah. should take a picture of it later. But I was like, oh, hi, uh, yep, yep, yep. And I'm like, I'm, but but now I decide because since I where I live, I'm like, I wonder which <laughs> holler like, it is. Like, which, <laughs> There's one on either side bet. of me. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'm gonna also give a preface to this one. Uh, by now, people have already seen the title of this if they've clicked on it. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and just preface this by saying that not only are there books, there are television shows, there are movies, and countless articles about this one subject. And I, at one point in time, I had to stop learning because I, 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 I made a, I made a joke about a week and a half ago, like saying, "Hey, um, I'm, I'm yeah. up to eight pages." And then, like within a day, I was up to ten pages of research. You know, one of the reasons I'm I'm doing this story is because this this month will be the 24th anniversary Yay! of when I through hiked, when I finished my through hike, hey, of the Appalachian Trail, and it will also mark ten years since uh, I started uh, the Pox and Puss podcast with Puss and Boots, uh, a guest of ours from again. a couple of episodes ago. <laughs> And so uh, later this month, we will be releasing an episode of Pox and Puss. So I thought that, you know, well, you know, why not um, tell another story about the Appalachian Trail just and kind of commemorate this month of Pox and Puss. <laughs> Perfection. Um, and I and I had I had a pretty decent story uh, about when I through hiked and what was going on at that time and how close I got to the case itself. But uh, now I will. Yeah, I will preface this with I have heard the little bits from when you've talked about it, tiny bits on Pucks and Puss, but I have absolutely like no clue about any of this. Yeah, maybe it's because I think I was like twelve or thirteen when that right. it happened. Sorry to make you feel old. Yeah, but no, no, <laughs> like, no, no, no. So I like. You know, that stuff in the news, I wasn't paying attention to at that point. So I can, I mean, I can kind of remember it, but I just don't, I don't have any recollection. So I'm super excited to hear about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the time I knew about the major event that happened, but, you know, I was like a freshman in college. So I didn't, I mean, I, I didn't, and I lived in the middle of nowhere. I didn't have the TV and the, and the, and I wasn't watching the news and keeping up with current events. So yeah, I learned a lot, and every time I read a new article, a different article, there was something else or a different point of view. So there's going to be some stuff that is screwy in here, just because I couldn't 
I, I couldn't verify with, you know, multiple sources and that kind of thing. But, uh, but anyway, um, I had to stop at 13 pages of research. And when I say I have 13 <laughs> pages of research, these are with quarter inch margins. <laughs> these are not <laughs> normal margins, 12 point font with, uh, uh, Calibri. I think they are in, <laughs> yep. Calibri, as long as it wasn't body. comic sans. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. So here we go. So in 1966, Eric Rudolph was born, uh, one of six children of Robert and Patricia Rudolph. Patricia, who hailed from Philadelphia, had left a covenant where she was trained to become a nun to be with Robert. They moved to Homestead, Florida, south of Miami, and then I'm just going to say this is up for grabs because I read articles that said he was born in New York, and then they moved to Florida, or that he was born in Florida. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Let's just go ahead and say he's a Florida man. Yep. For a little bit. <laughs> so when ni- in 1985, uh, right about the time uh, Rudolph was 15, his father, Robert, who was an airline mechanic and a prison minister, died of cancer. After that, he and his mom moved with their siblings to a mountaintop cabin on six acres in Nantahala, North Carolina. Nantahala is in Macon County, far in the western part of the state of North Carolina, uh, home of the Nantahala River, the William Bartram Trail, and the Appalachian Trail. The family worked hard to live off the grid. Uh, I remember reading one article that said that they that one neighbor knew they did have a generator just in case, but uh, that they rarely used it. Uh, Eric and his mother were allegedly mad at the U.S. government because the U.S. Food and Drug Administration refused to approve a drug called... Latrell, uh, it's L-A-E-T-R-I-L-E, which was a controversial, highly suspect concoction made of apricot pits that was officially discredited as cancer treatment in 1982. Rudolph is said to have believed the drug could have saved his father. Rudolph attended the Nanahala School. However, he dropped out his freshman year and then worked as a carpenter with his older brother, Daniel. Uh, the Nanahala School is a pretty small place. Like, I think currently it has 100 students, um, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's really in the middle of nowhere uh, down in the Nanahala Gorge, pretty much. Even though Rudolph had a strict Christian upbringing, he allegedly had a very lucrative marijuana growing operation. He would bury, of course, he would bury 50 <laughs> gallon barrels in the ground to store large amounts of marijuana after harvesting them. And then he would turn around and bury his earnings in different barrels buried somewhere else just to cover his tracks. This is the first instance we know of of Rudolph burying items in order to hide them from people. But it is far from the last. I mean, that sounds like something straight out of a book I've read about, like, I mean, it was a fictionalized book. It was called Dogs of God. Mm. And it's based out of, like, Pocahontas County, West Virginia. And that literally sounds like that some of that crap from that book. That's insane. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It, it gets it gets it gets cool. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> um, the Asheville Citizen Times, which is a newspaper uh, out of Asheville, which I'll re- refer to several times in this thing, uh, it, they reported that uh, Nana Hale residents recalled Rudolph quote going to camp in six inches of snow, equipped with nothing but a poncho leading some to speculate he had prepared a hiding spot, perhaps a bunker, many years ago. Rudolph was always preparing for the future. Hmm. 
So Nanahala, uh translated from Cherokee, means land of the noonday sun. The Nanahala Gorge is exactly that. It is a gorge. When I worked there, uh, spoiler alert, we had to remind people of this on a daily basis. People would think, like, oh, I'm going to go for this real quick hike. And it's like, yeah, no, um, you're probably not. <laughs> no, you're not. It would be cut short um, if you're going to end it faster than you think. <clears throat> there are days where you only see the sun for a few hours. It's just when you're in the gorge, it's just a narrow road with a river winding through the walls of stone thousands of feet high on either side. For example, where the Appalachian Trail crosses the Nanahala River, the elevation is 1,723 feet. And the climb north of the Chioa Bald, kind of like an unofficial summit of the gorge and also the northern terminus of the Bartram Trail, it's an eight-mile steep hike that it leads up to 5,062 feet. Um, and I'll just go ahead and get real nerdy here. For, for Appalachian Trail nerds, the elevation gain out of the Nanahala Gorge heading north is similar to the climb that you would have going from Katahdin Stream Campground around 1,100 feet to Maine's tallest peak and the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, Mount Katahdin, which sits at 5,200 feet. Both are extremely steep climbs, around 4,000 feet of elevation gain in 7 to 8 miles. And the average round trip is about 8 to 12 hours. Good God. How many switchbacks are on that? Holy crap. Not as many as you'd think. (laughs) Really? There's a a lot of... Holy crap. uh, Yeah, my wife and I did that hike one time, and um, she was not happy with me uh, that I had chosen Uh, that one. (laughs) (laughs) i probably would kick you too i'd be like no yeah yeah. (laughs) no more (laughs) all right so record scratch back to 1987 uh at the suggestion of a director of a militia compound in western north carolina which is a whole other story uh rudolph (laughs) so yeah there's a militia compound in western north carolina and i'm gonna leave it at that yeah yeah I'm going to leave it at that. Um, So the director of that place convinces or suggests that Rudolph's mother should move to this place called the Christian Identity Compound in Missouri, known as the Church of Israel. According to the Anti-Defamation League and confirmed by the Southern Poverty Law Center website, quote, Christian identity is a religious ideology popular in extreme right-wing circles. Adherents believe okay. that whites of European descent can be traced back to the, quote, lost tribes of Israel, end quote. Its virulent racist and anti-Semitic beliefs are usually accompanied by an extreme anti-government sentiments. Despite its small size, Christian identity influences virtually all white supremacist and extreme anti-government movements. It has informed criminal behavior ranging from hate crimes to acts of terror- terrorism. End quote. So, in other words, they are BFFs with the neo-Nazis that live just north of me. Great. Glad to know we both have our own little group of psychopaths. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. Bye. So, yeah. This oh, like God. <clears throat> and Rudolph moved there when he was 18 with his mom. Um, so, there was the... Right and prime impression, Tom. Right. And, and, you know, right, you know, a couple years after losing a father... Um, needing another father Mm -hmm. figure so there was this special investigation called ordained by hate done by the joplin globe newspaper um according to them uh, this was published in 2001 according to them the rudolph stayed for about four months keeping mostly to themselves and only attending church services sporadically 
Other accounts say Rudolph had a very close relationship to the man in charge of the compound, possibly encouraging him to act as, quote, a lone wolf who tells no one, end quote. This is, all no- is another quote from the Ordained by Hate. Some formerly associated with, white, with the white supremacist Christian identity compound located in northeastern Vernon County say it was here that Eric Rudolph learned to hate. That boy knew how to hate before he got there, but that just made it 800 times worse. Yeah. Surprise. Uh, Eric Rudolph uh, gets his GED and goes into the army. What? (laughs) Uh, They actually, they must not do any kind of background check if they accepted him. That's all I got to say. Yeah. So uh, he went to Fort Benning, did did basic training at Fort Benning. Um, then, then he attended air assault school at Fort Campbell in 1988. And then in January, 1989, Eric Rudolph was given a less than honorable discharge due to marijuana use while serving in the 101st airborne division at Fort Campbell in Kentucky. <clears throat> Had you ever heard of that Shit. before? Shit. That he was in the 101st no, for a short time, the, or the uh, of a I'd never I didn't know he than, had any military career. Had you ever heard of a less, oh, than, a less honorable. than honorable? Yeah, so I, I mean, I've heard of honorable and have, dishonorable, but I had never heard of a less yeah. than honorable. No, my my uncle was actually actually um, a master sergeant at Fort Leonard Wood in Kentucky, so I had heard of that one. Okay, um, because he had somebody in his what was in his one of his classes that he was because he was drill instructor he had one person one guy in like one of his classes that they did a less than honorable discharge too well i I didn't i didn't know that so for people who are listening who don't know that they're basically there's more than five but there's basically five levels of discharge Mm -hmm. honorable general other than honorable or less than honorable bad conduct and dishonorable so once you get below honorable then you're uh, VA benefits begin to go away. Yeah. So when you get to general, that means you no longer you get you get your other VA benefits, but you, your GI bill is off the table. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to other than honorable or less than honorable, everything goes away. So it's a very steep yeah. drop. So that means when Rudolph was discharged, he would have had no VA benefits at all. No, I did not know there was a. I didn't know there was a general discharge, though. Yeah, yeah. That that one's just yeah. like, I guess if you didn't have an actual crime, but you didn't act in an honorable way, I I, I couldn't. Yeah. There's there's a, I got this from the from the VA site. Uh, yeah. But um. So anyway, so at this point in time, Rudolph's been kicked out. By the time he gets to the early '90s, he's returned back to Western North Carolina, but he's not in Nantahala anymore. He's now in Murphy. So by the early '90s, Rudolph had developed a substantial disdain for what he called the "quote progressive policies" of President Bill Clinton. Rudolph decries socialized <laughs> medicine. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I know. When you look back, progressive, on things, progressive. <laughs> Rudolph decries socialized medicine, multinational corporations, feminism, homosexuals in the military, the purportedly the purportedly imminent mass confiscation of firearms. Remember that? Yeah. And the impending new world order. Oh my god! So uh, order shit. So I, I I know you and I don't like to promote the people, but sometimes hearing from them directly, uh, you know. 
Yeah. It, it, it's like I said, like you don't like to promote them, but so this just kind of gives you an idea of where he was prior to all this stuff. Um, I was convinced that an illegitimate government, this is a quote from Eric Rudolph. I was convinced that an illegitimate government controlled our country and if peaceful efforts to remove it had failed, then the only alternative was to remove it by force. Naturally, I couldn't do it alone. I had no delusions on that score. I had to somehow encourage others to help. So is it during this time, some officials suspect that Rudolph may have had contact with militant anti-abortion group called the Army of God. In an interview with, former, uh, with a former girlfriend of Rudolph's, it, quote, reveals a portrait of a disaffected, angry man who trusted few, a dutiful son who deeply mourned the death of his father, a man who sought refuge in the embrace of drugs, racial intolerance, and an all-consuming rage. And now here is her quote from the interview. He had some pretty radical views regarding race. It's one of the reasons why I was, was estranging myself from him. He was quiet and shy and respectful to me, but that was one of the things we really had a big difference of opinion on. I remember him being a little prejudiced, and I was not comfortable with that. Um, in another interview I, I, I saw, or another article I saw, that he started casually using the N-word around her, and she wasn't really comfortable about that, Oof. and eventually just kind of broke things off with him. So. Oof. so, in 1996, Atlanta, Georgia hosted the Summer Olympics. If I was good at my job, I would have looked up what Olympiad that was. But anyway, most competition locations were focused in a three-mile radius from the city center. Uh, a large amount of tax money had been focused kind of on that three-mile area when they were going for grants and all these different things through the government. So, in But in addition to downtown Atlanta, and I, I, I had forgotten this, in addition to downtown Atlanta, there were also soccer matches in Miami. Orlando and Birmingham, Alabama, and Washington, D.C., um, while Savannah, Athens, and Columbus, Georgia, also ho- hosted events. And the white. Wait, so these were all. These were all tied into the Olympics. Yeah, these were all different locations. Uh, oh wow! Okay, where the where the Olympics happened, including um, the whitewater sports, which were held at the Ocoee Whitewater Center in near Ducktown, Tennessee. Hmm. Which uh, actually just over the winter burned, like <gasps> someone set it on fire, and oh, so arson, yeah, gotcha. and like down the road, I'm not even kidding you. Like so, there was a fire called in, and I think it was icing or snowing or something, and a fire yeah. had been called in because literally down the road from where this fire was taking place. A Klondike bar truck, a semi full of Klondike bars, caught on fire. And <laughs> and I have a joke for that. so the fire, yeah. What would you do? And what uh, would you do for a Klondike bar? Yeah, You'd set a shit on fire. Set shit on fire. <laughs> and then, but meanwhile, so so just like two miles down the road, the the Whitewater Center, which was you know you know whatever yeah. you know from nineteen ninety six. Was on fire, and so I think there there might have been some miscommunication. Anyway, so uh, they they were focusing their attention on this fire, and then you know anyway. Um, so that's a long yeah. that's that's uh, neither here nor here nor there. But so back <laughs> gotcha. uh, back in Atlanta, the brand yeah. new Centennial Olympic Park, which was a twenty two acre park built by the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games as part of this infrastructure improvements for the ninety six Olympics. 
And even still today, it gets millions of visitors per year and hosts several events, including concerts and an annual Independence Day concert and fireworks display. Which, that's good to hear, because a lot of Olympic park, like, places where the Olympics take place, a lot of them turn into, like, ghost areas. Like, not like, woo ghosty, but, like, just deserted. So, on July 27th, 1996, uh, just before midnight, during the Olympics, mm-hmm. Eric Rudolph, age 29, carries a 100-pound backpack into Centennial Park filled with a bomb made up with nails, screws, and other shrapnel that was meant to tear through its victim. Mm. He set the pack under the park bench, and I read several different claims. Some were that there were three separate packages that Uh he put underneath this bench. One was that it was just his book bag or this backpack that he put underneath the, the, the bench. Uh-huh. There's several different several different accounts of what was under there, but uh, commonly people say it was a backpack that was put under there. I I can remember that's the like trying to remember back. That's I remember hearing about a backpack. So yeah. So but he said he set the timer for 55 minutes and walked away. Mm-hmm. Rudolph says that he intended to anonymously call 911 within 10 minutes of setting the timer, but said that quote due to logistics he couldn't get to a phone until. 40 minutes after he had set the timer. What? Yeah, leaving less than 15 minutes for the police to locate the bomb and evacuate one of the busiest spots in the world right then with people from all around the world speaking multiple languages having to clear yeah. out a huge park, a 22-acre park. Um, Rudolph I- claims that he had hoped the police would empty the park before the detonation. Oh, so he wanted to take out first responders. Cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Pretty much. Worthless piece of shit. I mean, he was anyways, but still. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. A short time before Rudolph made the nine one one call, Richard Jewell, a Centennial Park security guard, saw something he needed to take care of. There had been a group of guys who were drunk and had hidden some beer underneath a park bench. Jewell tried to get the men to move along, but they just ignored him because he was just a security guard. So he called in someone he knew he, they would listen to, a member of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that he personally knew. Um, I read one account where like they had kind of like touched base earlier in the night whenever it was like that guy came on. He was like, hey, what's going on? You know, and they just kind of just touched base or whatever. Uh, Richard Jewell had been a police officer. Um, he had been a he had been a, uh, a jailer. Um, he had been several things, um, uh, at that point in time. He even worked as an officer for a, uh, a school. The men eventually moved along and, you know, once the, once the GBI officer came over, the men eventually moved along and took their cooler with them. As they walked away, Jewel noticed they had left something else behind under the park bench. And he mentioned it to the officer. The GBI officer called over his shoulder to the men like, hey... You know, you forgot something, but they were like, hey, we didn't leave anything else. This is all we had. And mm-hmm. uh, had like a cooler beer or whatever, you know. And so they looked around and there was like a hillside, like a grass, literally the words grassy knoll uh, oh. <laughs> next to it. They looked around and asked everyone that they could see in the vicinity, hey, did you leave this packet? Did you leave this this pack, this backpack over here? And no one claimed it, and so they immediately were like, "Okay, it's an un- it's it's a." They went by the protocol. It's a unattended mm-hmm. package. We need to get people, uh, you know, x amount of distance away from this thing, 
And yeah. as they were doing it, you know, they had cleared out most of most everyone, but um, unfortunately, it was too late to clear out all of Centennial Park. And so the blast, a giant pipe bomb filled with those screws, nails, and shrapnel, killed Alice Hawthorne and wounded 111 other people. Oh, I didn't realize anybody had actually gotten killed in that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she, wow. uh, I think I think it went through her head. I think a piece of metal oh, went through her head. God. Yeah. Um, or at least struck her head or something. Um, but there are actually structures in the park that still show scars from the bombing. And there's like this one famous Ugh. statue in Centennial Park, or just like this piece of art that's in the middle of like a water feature. And it has the imprint like sideways of like a nail. Like it looks like if you were to be like, you know, make it look like there was a nail that like flew into the side of this thing and scorch around it. Yeah. It literally has a scorch Ugh. mark around it and a nail, um, like in, 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 you know, boom, where it had gone in. Um, so Rudolph later stated in his confession that he targeted the event because it promoted socialism. Oh, Jesus. He wanted to embarrass the U.S. government. In one of his jailhouse screes, Rudolph specifically pointed out the use of John Lennon's Imagine as evidence of the United States promoting socialism. Oh, for Pete's sake. I think, you, I, I, think Imagine, uh, I think Imagine might have been like the theme of the Olympics or something like that. Or it, it, it was like the theme song or something like that. But yeah, that, that promoted socialism. So, although his discovery saved many lives, Jewel went on to be the to become a suspect who was publicly tried viciously in the media, including late night jokes by Tonight Show host Jay Leno. Mm-hmm. Jewel was formally cleared by the U.S. Attorney months later, and uh, Leno would eventually apologize. That's what I remember the most is like all the hubbub around Richard Jewell and all that. That's if there's one thing that sticks out of my brain from this time, it's that because I can remember. I mean. That was plastered all over everything. That was the big story. And people might also remember, I think it was just a few years ago, they made a movie, like 2013, 2014. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, Kathy Bates is in it, I think, and plays like his mother or something. Or Yeah. I think Kathy Bates is in it. But yeah, I remember seeing that because it like, got like some recognition at the Oscars and stuff. So yeah. He had... Uh... <clears throat> he had had a rough time as you know in his other positions as an officer and mm-hmm. had decided to move to Atlanta into his mom's basement on purpose because he figured that they were going to be hiring police officers and that if he could show that he was a good security guard throughout the Olympics yeah. that maybe they'd give him a, a, a shot at, at being a police yeah. officer in Atlanta. And then, yeah. then he would eventually move out of his mom's and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, but that was the thing everybody focused on. It was like, oh, he lives in his mom's basement. Lives in his mom's basement. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I definitely remember all that, like all the about Richard Jewell. Yeah. That definitely sticks out. So. And, and I know there's probably some people right now that are like, I thought this was a podcast about the outdoors. <laughs> Well, first off, it was it was in a public give us park. a minute. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's in a public park. <laughs> um, it happened outdoors. Uh, we we mentioned the Nantahala River. Um, so after making the nine one one call in Georgia, Rudolph sped back to his trailer in Murphy. He grabbed his go bag, some extra supplies, jumped in his truck, and drove up into the hills along the North Carolina Tennessee border. 
Rudolph sat listening to the radio, waiting to see if he heard any clues that the authorities were on to him or had found a suspect, or had a suspect. After a few days of hiding out, not hearing anything on the radio, he returned to his trailer in Murphy, North Carolina. President Clinton denounced the centennial explosion as a, quote, evil act of terror and vowed to do everything possible to track down and punish those responsible. Despite the event, officials and athletes agreed that the game should continue as planned. So Rudolph's plan to embarrass the U.S. government by causing them to cancel the games had only lasted one day. I might not have said that, but that was his point. He wanted to basically cause the Olympics to stop. Yeah, to just completely shut down. Yeah, exactly. Just make yeah. it stop. And then they were like, nope, the games must go on. And I'm sure the sponsors were like that, too. <laughs> the FBI placed Eric Rudolph on the 10 most wanted fugitives list, announcing the $1 million reward for his capture. Chris West, who at the time was the assistant police chief of Andrews, North Carolina, which is a town very close to Murphy, Mm -hmm. said, The FBI is keeping it pretty hush. We could have given them help with the terrain, shown them spots they need to check out, caves, caverns, old mountain homes, but they haven't asked us. (laughs) So I went back to my journals because I wanted to be as accurate as possible this timeline. I Mm -hmm. wasn't extremely diligent about writing every day or even every week, so I had some figuring out to do. So to start off, this is a story about the time I got very close to the Eric Rudolph case. So I believe it was May 4th, 1998. Barf and I stay at the Partnership Shelter along the Appalachian Trail in a very southwestern corner of Virginia. It's just after people would have finished hiking the Mount Rogers section of the Appalachian Trail. At that time, it was a new shelter, and it was on a lot of people's list because it's just a quarter-mile walk from there to what's now known as the Pat Jennings Visitor Center, but back then it was just known as the Mount Rogers Headquarters. But the thing is, is that there was a pizza place in town that would deliver out to the headquarters so long as you spent enough money for their trip. So, like, two pizzas was enough to get them to come out there for the driver. Nice. <laughs> So, yeah, so you're just like, sweet, I got a quarter-mile walk to, to, to pizza. Yeah. You know? So so you, you, so it's one of those where it's like you're thinking about it all day because you know this. Yeah. It's, it's in a book. You know it, You know what's going to happen. We made a point of getting there like a little bit earlier so we wouldn't miss yeah. it. Yeah. At that point in time, the shower hadn't been set up yet, but it was, in fact, two stories tall, and you access a second level by a ladder on the outside. Um A few days before this, back in Damascus, Virginia, I had picked up a yellow Sony Sports Walkman. Um, (laughs) It was the kind that had, like, the lid snap enclosure that, like, you know, kept that seal so it was, like, extra waterproof. And I had had uh, some tapes dropped into my resupply box in Damascus, so I would have something to listen to on the Walkman. Um, After a long day in the truck... After a long day on the trail, I could see the two-story shelter appearing through the leaves in front of me. I could, I could just kind of like see it like just slowly appearing. Mm-hmm. I was that much closer to pizza. <laughs> and I did something that I didn't really normally do, and I think I might have stopped after this. I started, at, I, as I was starting to appear through the woods, I started to sing along. I remember I was listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. Whatever it was, it was on the, it was on the FM radio. Mm-hmm. And I started to sing along with whatever it was, probably dancing because pizza was imminent. Yeah. I mean, who and doesn't dance for pizza? So, 
<laughs> right, you know, and so I'm just like, yes, I, I know pizza's coming up here, and so as I'm kind of dancing, singing whatever, I, you know, probably, you know, pop song I'm listening to on the radio mm-hmm. comes on, Barf gives me, like, the, the cutthroat, like, be quiet sign, yeah, and the big eyes, like, shut, <laughs> shut your face hole. <laughs> yeah, so I stopped singing immediately, and I was like, what? Like, I just quietly asked, like, what? As I approached him, because I could see him sitting there, and he was like on the edge of the shelter on the first floor reading the register that was mm-hmm. there. And so I just kind of thought, like, oh, he's just hanging out, you yeah. know. And so he's like, shh. I'm like, what? And so it turns out, before I got there, he was a fat, he was a much faster hiker than I mm-hmm. was. So before I got there, he climbed up the ladder on, to, on the outside to see what, to check out the second story. And when he looked in, he saw a man sitting in front of like one of those like old school portable TVs, like the kind of, like, you had like the handle where you could carry yeah. it, and then the handle would swing under and turn yeah, into yeah. Like, the stand yeah. for the TV. So this guy had one of those, and then had on like those '80s '90s era over the ear headphones that have like a coiled tele old school telephone yeah. line. Yeah. Like this guy is sitting upstairs looking at a portable TV with like, you know, a quarter inch stereo headphone cables stuck in. Mm-hmm. And there was like some other stuff's kind of scattered around. Barf looked at him. He looked at him and Barf just climbed right back down. And shortly thereafter I showed up. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, I needed water and I needed pizza and so we just said, let's just take our stuff up to the shelter, uh, take our stuff up to the headquarters. We'll get our pizza, then we'll figure it out from there. So there's a payphone outside of the headquarters, which, like I said, was a flat, straight quarter mile walk, mm-hmm. if that. Um, we each ate a large Supreme pizza. F- felt like we probably could have eaten another one. Um, Hiker hunger. And so as we're finishing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, people don't understand how many calories you're burning and how many calories you can take in um, and still lose over 55 pounds on the trail. (laughs) Ask me how I did it. Um, So as we finish the pizzas, there's kind of like a back porch area. When you're a through-hiker, you smell, for first off, um, and you're pretty unsightly. And so usually you're kind of sequestered to the back porches of places and the outdoor patios of restaurants and that kind of thing. And so, you know, so we just hung out out back on this back porch and there was a spigot, you know, like just one of those, like you pull the thing up and fill your water bottles up about 50 feet or so off the back porch where we knew we had to go to get some more water before we went back to the shelter. And so... As we're kind of finishing up there, Barf's like, here he comes. And it was the guy. Mm -hmm. So the guy comes up and, you know, he had brown hair. He's about, you know, 5'10", 5'11". Kept his head down. Didn't look at anybody. Mm -hmm. Just walks over, fills up his tube, whatever he had for his water. Turns around, takes off. And, uh, yeah. So... I could immediately tell this was a dude I didn't want to be around. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I, my spidey senses were up. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, huh, what's up with this dude? You know, and, and then, but it was like, uh, I don't know. So what we realized 
also at that point was was a few days before, like you know, like five days before, we've been hiking with this guy named Tin Man. Okay. And uh, he had gotten news that his family was going to be meeting up with him at the at this headquarters. Mm-hmm. And so he decided to kind of step on the gas and take off. So like a couple days later, we meet these two women who are hiking south. And they tell us about a guy who's hanging out in the shelter. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tin man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we know the guy. Mm-hmm. We know who this dude is. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's our buddy. No problem. These two ladies look at us like, this is your buddy? Like, okay, sure. So we start to realize it wasn't Tin Man. And we definitely weren't expecting this dude to still be here. Yeah. So this, you know, this this would have been like four or five days that we had met these ladies. And now all of a sudden we're running into this guy. And so it's like, oh my gosh, this guy's been here for a while. <laughs> we fill up our water. We take our packs back over there. And when we come back, you know, like when we come back, this guy is using the picnic table out front to cook water, to boil water Mm -hmm. for pasta. And we're just kind of sitting on the edge of the shelter, like, what do we do? And we're looking at the register, looking at whatever you could read or whatever. And we're just kind of sitting there, just kind of trying not to ignore him. We're not saying a word to each other. We're just kind of sitting there. Mm -hmm. So the guy finally finishes boiling his pasta water and... And, and when he pours it out, when he drains his pasta, he drains it into another big old pan that he had. And he turned to us, and it's been like 45 minutes at this point, mm-hmm. of silence. <laughs> he turns to us and holds up this just shy of boiling pot of water that had had pasta in it. And is like... Uh, you fellas need any hot water? No. No, I don't, sir. And uh, so we were kind of like, uh, nah, we're good, but th- thank you. You know, it's one of those, like, I think you and I have had this discussion before where it's like, occasionally you have to smile and nod at somebody oh, yeah. that you really shouldn't have to smile and nod to, but it's just in your best self-interest to kind of smile yeah. and nod. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Self-preservation. Oh, th- thank you for yeah. the offer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for the offer of some cloudy water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, God. Yeah. Just give me some cloudy water. Yeah. Oh, I need... I, I don't know what he thought we were going to use it for, but it was like, okay, no, yeah, no, no, thank you. <laughs> so then he just, like, proceeds to pour it out, like, right in front of the shelter. Like, oh, perfect. Thank <laughs> Great. you. Great. And uh, so then he takes all this boiled pasta and puts it into, like, Ziploc bags. And like, all right. Okay. So he puts it all in these Ziploc bags, and then he starts putting these Ziploc bags, and he had one of those big external frame backpacks. Oh, God. And he starts putting these bags of pasta in, like, the pouches on the sides and the pockets on the sides of this bag, of his backpack. And we're like, what in the hell is going yeah. on here? And so finally he just uh, he, he hoists the pack on his back. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of like says, well, I'm going to go into town. And Mind you, this is like 5, 6 o'clock p.m. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to go into town. It gives me something to do in between thunderstorms. And so once again, we just kind of politely laughed. Partially yeah. just to kind of appease this tense animal in front of us. Yeah. And then also. Literally. <laughs> because again, 
it's raining every damn day. Yeah. So we can kind of commiserate with this guy just in case he really is a hiker. Yeah. And we're going to have to deal with him for the next 1,200 yeah. miles. And so we're kind of like, okay, all right. <laughs> Be careful, bye. <laughs> boom, throws his yeah. pack on, takes off, boom, down around the thing. And we just watch him disappear like, thank yeah. God. Well, like 10 minutes later, this dude shows up who we had never met before. His name was Dreamcatcher. Mm-hmm. He showed up, and we just kind of chit-chatted and kind of gave him a quick look. And <laughs> be like, story. yo. He was like, oh, I think I've seen that guy. And we're like, you've seen that guy? He's like, yeah, I think I've seen that guy. And we're like, okay. okay. And uh, five minutes after Dreamcatcher shows up, this uh, this woman named Squirrel shows up. And we had met her uh, a hundred or so miles back and hadn't seen her in a couple of days. And so it was like, oh, cool, Squirrel's yeah. here. They were just like us. They had pizza on the brain, so they dropped their packs at the shelter mm-hmm. and walked a quarter mile up to the headquarters. And they weren't gone very long. Mm-hmm. And they turned around, and I saw them walking back towards us. Okay. And with this other guy. And we're like, what's going on here? And the guy seemed pretty like a clean-cut kind of guy, and he comes back, and it turns out, I don't think I knew this at the time, but he was like the pastor of some church or something. Mm-hmm. He had offered to take them to Pizza Hut oh. in town and uh, at a, like an all-you-can-eat buffet, yeah. at, like, you know, special Pizza Hut thing. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, well, we've got two friends back at the place. Yeah. And, and the guy's like, well, why don't you guys come with us, too? And we're like, well, well, like I said, we could eat another pizza. Yeah. Sure enough, we pop in the back of this pastor's pickup truck, mm-hmm. leaving our backpacks at this shelter, hoping to God nobody steals our stuff. Yeah. And uh, we went into town, and this is like 90, again, this is 1998, mm-hmm. so this was like Pizza Hut. Yes. You know, in its like prime. Buffet. Oh, God, I missed the Those buffet. Vinyl, red, white gingham t- uh, tablecloths. Oh, yeah. The pitchers of domestic beer in those lightweight plastic pitchers. Yes. Oh, Can we just? So I mean, perfect. let's let's just take a moment of silence for Pizza Hut. Mm, God, the bet. Like I don't care. Anybody says the best pizza fast food chain, whatever. Oh, the best. It's currently your cash for gold uh, store in your neighborhood. <laughs> Ours is a Japanese steakhouse. So yeah. <laughs> we had a great time at Pizza oh, Hut. I mean. I I would I would say probably a pitcher each, mm-hmm. and it was in our bellies, you know. Ugh. And as much pizza as we could eat, you know, and just oh salad, just just we went nuts. Yeah. After we're done with that, we ride back in the passenger's truck. We get back to the headquarters. Mm-hmm. It's around dark. We're still alone. No, I, that was our worry was that we were going to come back after having a pitcher of beer, <laughs> and be all of a sudden stumbling in the camp yeah. with all these other hikers there who didn't get to eat pizza. Yeah. Or at least as much pizza as we had yeah. had. But nobody had arrived at the shelter. Our stuff was in the exact same place. Dreamcatcher climbed up the ladder to check upstairs. Nobody was there mm-hmm. either. So we were just standing around telling drunk stories, yeah. uh, having a good time. Some people there were smoking cigarettes. Yes. Uh, so I was kind of standing with my back to the woods and I was facing the shelter. Mm -hmm. A couple of them were sitting on the shelter. One person was sitting on the picnic table, but I just kind of was facing the shelter and somebody had told a story and we were laughing and we were laughing 
and we were laughing so hard, like just that you can't catch oh, yeah. your breath. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and we're just oh like bent over, just like oh, and out of the corner of my eye, somebody's coming. But I couldn't get it out because I was laughing so mm-hmm. hard. And if I did, I was gonna scream it, yell it. I was laughing mm-hmm. so hard. And and, and and so I'm trying to get the attention of these three drunken idiots in front of me. Mm-hmm. And while not attracting attention to it, and finally I, I finally get it out. And it, it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night now. Yeah. We've been up talking, you know. And so I finally get it out. And they they don't believe me at first. And finally Dreamcatcher looks over and he's like, no, he's right. And so the figure starts getting closer and closer. And... You know, just just a thing for people who are hikers or who aren't hikers. Anytime you're at a shelter that's near the road, you it's a roll of the dice of what your night's going to be like. Yeah. Because there's a uh, there's a really good chance that at midnight some teenagers are going to roll in who just got a box of Ice House. And they're just going to get rowdy. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you I don't know if you've ever you used to buy a box of Ice House. It was a a cube. I've, I've never drank it, but um, I've seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you get lucky and the teenagers will share some beer with you. <laughs> then the other thing we thought was, well, shoot, the headquarters is right yeah. there. Maybe it's somebody from headquarters. We're being loud. Yeah. We're not. We're basically 150, 200 yards away from this place. Yeah. Maybe someone's coming out to tell us to shut up, but there's nobody out here. So yeah. who's going to complain? And then we realized it was the pasta water mystery hike. <laughs> you call him the pasta water mystery hiker (laughs) i love it so he immediately and very loudly accused us all of smoking pot it was just camel lights and uh, like i said at least a pitcher of budweiser in each of our bellies that he was probably smelling Mm -hmm. nobody had pot or if they did they weren't Mm -hmm. sharing you smell like you're smoking the back nine i could smell you all the way from the street light I could hear y'all telling each other to be quiet. <laughs> and he was standing with his back to us with that giant backpack. Mm-hmm. And we could tell that he had something in his hand, but we couldn't see what it was. And it was obvious that he had been drinking and he was somehow drunker than oh, us. Oh, boy. Luckily, Dreamcatcher was a talker. I'm thinking he was like a salesman or uh, in law school, something like that back in the quote unquote real yeah. world. But he he just kind of had a way of focusing this crazy drunk guy's attention and energy on him. And he just kind of nodded along and kept the guy happy. And we realized quickly that they had not met before. Mm-hmm. This was not the person Dreamcatcher thought he was talking with at first. Mm-hmm. But um, we realized that what the guy had in his hand was a bottle of booze Mm -hmm. but it was 1998 malt liquor that at that time was called red bull it it was a real thing called red bull i just remember it was but do you remember those old school arizona iced tea bottles that kind of had like almost like an upside down light bulb shape like with like a tube at the top kind of a bulbous thing it was in that kind of shape and uh but it was malt liquor I couldn't imagine drinking any of it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and he, but he offered it to us and it was like, no, 
the guy was definitely fishing for some pot. Like, he was trying to get us to give him some... And I was like, hey, man, like, no. And, like, you know, I'm pretty sure at that point in time, even if somebody did have something, this was not the person they were giving it yeah. to. The guy starts to go on and tell us about his experience in town. This is the same town where we had just eaten pizza and beer purchased by a pastor. Um, but so he started to tell us about the post office and told us not to go to the post office. And we we're like, well, why, why not? And he said, well, they have armored guards there, two of them. And we're like, really? He's like, yeah, they have armored guards and they wouldn't let me in. And we're like, really? Okay. Armed guards at the post office. And he's like, yeah, they wouldn't let me inside. And he had some other crazy things to say that, you know, kind of made you think, like, maybe you're the problem. You know, one of those kind of things. Yeah. Then he starts to tell us a story about this time he went to go see Bill Clinton speak. And that the speech was scheduled to be outdoors. Mm -hmm. But due to inclement weather, like rain or something like that, it had been moved inside into a different facility indoors. But for once again, he wasn't allowed inside. So, obviously, that means one thing and one thing only. Bill Clinton doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, God. He is not real. That what they showed that night on the inside, because they couldn't do it in the rain, they couldn't do it outside, was a hologram. Oh, my God. I mean, this is before Tupac holograms, <laughs> you know, came to Coachella years ago. Uh, he he truly believed that there was going to be either a fake person or a hologram of Bill Clinton on the stage of this wherever it was that Clinton was supposed to talk. So it was just kind of like, okay, you know, we're definitely dealing with an anti-government. Yeah. You know, you know, no matter what your politics are, we're definitely dealing with somebody here who's unhinged <laughs> just slightly yeah i don't remember hearing anything about armed guards at post yeah. offices so so basically it, it was just a crash course in how to kill a buzz um, <laughs> what this guy was doing true it, it, it just kept going and just kept going and you know and, and and again looking back on it as an older person um through older eyes and and knowing situations these days, you know, I keep forgetting that there was one woman there by herself. Mm -hmm. And even though she had three people on her side, this was definitely an uncomfortable situation oh, yeah. for her. Squirrel. And so she had really kind of receded back into the corners and decided that she wasn't going to uh, talk with us. <clears throat> she said, I'm going to go this way. <laughs> So, yeah, so I, I can only imagine what her experience was. And I, I really actually thought about trying to reach out and touch base with her and see, like, what was your version of this story? Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, uh, mind you, all four of us were derunked. Yeah. And like I said, you know, it was a buzzkill, but still, you know, still it doesn't matter. Yeah. Finally, the guy is like, well, I guess I'm going to turn in. And we're like, okay. Um, oh, I forgot to that. mention that at one point in time, Dreamcatcher did take a swig of the red. Oh blood. God! And there's no doubt in my mind he did it just to appease the guy. Oh just, yeah. 
you know, just to keep them, you know, because all of us had turned it down. And then he was like, yeah, sure, 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 sure. You know, I'm like, oh, so guy heads upstairs. So as we were making our decisions on what to do the next morning, suddenly the mystery hiker fired up his TV radio, then turned on his super loud camp stove to cook something. He already had it. Inside. He already had plastic bags of pasta. What the hell? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> and immediately we all start having those like uh, probably like AMR, ASMR style conversations that are just mouth only. Like, yeah. what are we going to do? <laughs> like, what are we And because <clears throat> we're like, okay, well, there's obviously an insane person upstairs with this giant backpack. With a TV in it. <laughs> with the TV, yeah, we're stuck down here, drunk, and what are we gonna do? Like, are we gonna go to sleep? Are we yeah. gonna stay up? Are we gonna leave? And then we were like, well, if we leave right now, then he's gonna come after us. Still to this day, I don't know why we thought that, <laughs> but you know, but it, but it was you know it was a weird experience, you know, and and so. What we kind of realized was, okay, we're only a few hours away from sunrise. Mm -hmm. Our stuff's already laid out. We're going to make a lot of noise if we try and put our stuff away right now. Mm -hmm. So let's put away as much stuff as we can, as quiet as we can, just except for our sleeping bags, and just throw those things in our packs as soon as sunrise comes up and we can make it out of here mm -hmm. and we know he's asleep. And we're just going to book it down the trail and make make headway away from him. Yeah. Because there's no way he can catch us with that pack. There's a way he can catch us without that pack mm -hmm. and a knife and a gun or whatever. But we're like, you know, we're going to get out of here. We're all four laying down. And Squirrel just whisper laughed. He's going to burn down the whole <laughs> building. Oh, poor Squirrel. And we all had to hold in our laughter as we were certain that she was right and that we would wake to like one of the newest shelters on the Appalachian Trail in 1998 <laughs> engulfed in flames because a DJ headphone wearing Red Bull malt liquor swigging conspiracy <laughs> theorist who wanted to warm up pasta at 1 a.m. burned the place down. Oh, God. Uh, oh, God. I don't even know if Dreamcatcher or Squirrel slept, but I remember that we were kind of roused up kind of early and it, it hurt. Mm -hmm. We got up. And took off, crossed past the headquarters, crossed over the road that the headquarters uh, that leads to the headquarters. Went down this trail, went down the AT a good ways, and finally just pulled off. And like I feel, I feel like we pulled into the woods a good little ways too, like off the mm -hmm. trail, and just sat there and we're like, okay, and pretty much just laughed, like, what the hell yeah. are we doing? Finally, uh, we, you know, we pulled out our trail guidebooks and that kind of thing and they said uh it was like okay there's a motel a few miles away that has a diner attached mm -hmm. to it let's just cram four people into a one bedroom yeah. <laughs> one, one bed hotel room and get hot showers and just get away from this maniac and actually get some sleep you yeah. know even if we're just sleeping on the floor of a hotel room and so that's what we did so Fast forward to May 9th and May 10th, Mother's Day weekend. Well, our mothers and grandmothers had decided that they were going to come visit us on 
the Appalachian mm-hmm. Trail in a town called Bland, Virginia. I know exactly where that is. <laughs> it's just to the south of me. <laughs> After those two days of visiting with family, we kind of got a later start on our day on the 10th than we had planned. Mm-hmm. And so we realized we were going to have to have a shorter day in, and that was going to kind of mess with our food resupply stuff, like how much food we had. Mm-hmm. And so there was also some rain in the in the forecast. And so they, our families just kind of pulled, pitched in, and just got us a motel for the night. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was this very short hike. There might have actually been like a shuttle you could take in the morning up to the trail or mm-hmm. something like that, but... Um, it was a really short w- walking distance to a convenience store that also had like a off-brand Waffle House inside of it. Nice. So that was good. So I think we had dinner and breakfast at this Waffle House place before hiking out the next day. But um, so on my mom and grandma's way home, they stopped in a diner. My grandmother loved to go to like small diners along the side of the road. Yeah. And uh, this is out like out on. Um, was it I-81? Yep. Am I right? Yep, you are correct. Yeah. That is 81 that runs so through there. I, yeah, so I think they got off there, maybe took some back roads and went to some small towns mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And So they were in this one diner, and uh, this news story comes on and talks about how there's a chance that this Eric Rudolph guy is hiding out on the Appalachian Trail. Oh, God. And there's a million-dollar reward for him out there. Oh, God. So, anyway, back to the motel room. <laughs> so, uh, after fresh from stuffing our faces at the off-brand Waffle House, and we picked up nice. some beer, of course, we saw the unmistakable signs of other thru-hikers, which is like basically socks, bandanas, other clothing items hanging from chairs on the front porches of rooms that are like drying out, yeah. um, boots with the insoles pulled out to dry, the occasional tent or... Rainfly draped over a chair to dry out, and the door is always open. Mm -hmm. Hikers always leave their door open. Um, Anyway, so again, this is in the days before social media and cell phones, so there's no way to know who's around you except for the registers. Yeah. And if you didn't always sign into register, then people didn't know who was around. Well, sometimes you would be on the assumption that someone was ahead of you, and you'd find out, oh, no, they were behind me because they got off for a couple of days to see their family and mm-hmm. wherever they were from or whatever. And so this happened to us at the motel. And another through hiker, his name was Townsman, and we had been around him in North Carolina and um, Tennessee and Virginia at this point. And mm-hmm. uh, so Townsman comes up. He's like, there you guys are. And we're like, yeah, why? What's up? And he's like, and he goes, you you were one day ahead of us at the partnership shelter. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. When people arrived at the partnership shelter the next day, which would have been like the fifth or something like that at this point, mm-hmm. you know, registers were still there. People were hanging out and all that kind of stuff. But they noticed that down the hill in front of the place, they could see like a tarp mm-hmm. that was down the hill. And there was nobody else inside the shelter except for through hikers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for there to be a tarp set up on a, sh- a, a tent or something down the hill, whatever, you know. Yeah. They're doing their thing. Who knows? Yeah. 
so nobody really paid much attention. And then helicopters descended overhead. And then all these different uniformed people dropped out of nowhere and started basically taking all these people, detaining everyone. And they went down into the woods, pulled the pasta water guy out of there, who had set up, who had, for the first time since we had known, since these other women had seen him in there, he had left the shelter. They were like, okay, what's going on? Uh, I think Townsman had basically just shown up and was approached by agents. Mm -hmm. And then they were all taken into the headquarters and then split up and questioned. And Townsman told us, and I, 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 this is in my journal from that, from a, like that day that we saw him. Yeah. That he was questioned specifically about the bombings in Atlanta and the bombings in Alabama. <gasps> and he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, mean, I know about it, but I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he was questioned if he had seen Eric yeah. Rudolph or if he had was working with him and he's like no man i'm just a hiker again think about his day he was thinking about pizza he was thinking about pizza he's burning yeah. six thousand calories a day and he's oh, thinking God. about pizza and he's met with wingtip shoes and and badges and, and guns, guns. And they guns. split them all up <clears throat> but they yeah. pretty much detained the, the <clears throat> pasta water guy by himself and turns out they're calling that guy mm -hmm. Mike. And so they keep asking about this guy. And they're like, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't know anything else. Well, from the questioning that he was getting and the questioning that he was getting from the other hikers that they were able to hang out with, because pretty much what they told them was, you guys are staying here tonight. And I think from what I understand, they said, mm -hmm. roll out your sleeping bags. You're sleeping inside the headquarters tonight. And they're like, okay. You they're know, like, they're all okay. detained. <laughs> and so from the questioning yeah. and what they kind of gathered from the other agents, there was a person there who had multiple IDs from multiple states with multiple identification names on them. And that this person was obviously somehow wanted in connection with the bombings. Because why else were they kept asking them about Eric Rudolph and these bombings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had all been asked about it. And so sure enough, the next day they watched as he was allowed to leave. Because they had nothing on him. The cops had nothing on him except that he just had these multiple IDs and that kind of thing. And... <clears throat> For people to understand, there's there's a couple of different types of people out there. There are people like myself and Townsman and Barf and other people like that who their goal is to go from Georgia to Maine or Maine to Georgia and hike the entire Appalachian Trail in one fell swoop. Then there's section hikers and weekenders who are mm -hmm. either out there to, to do segments of it at a time or just kind of out there for the weekend. And then there's people out there who just kind of live out there, and that's their identity. And I can just tell you from experience... Category number three tends to have more oh crap moments, um, more situations where you feel like, well, outside's yeah. going to write about this one in an, an article. Meanwhile, back in North Carolina, the stories are starting to intensify about Eric Rudolph being on the Appalachian Trail, 
and and they're still mentioning mm-hmm. this million dollar reward. And so my mom did what mm-hmm. any rational human being would do who cannot get in touch with their son. She contacted the FBI and said that I possibly Shut had up. run into Eric Rudolph on the Appalachian Trail. Oh, no, Mom. <laughs> no. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I have no idea about this. I have no idea about this at all. So um, within oh, a day or so, there was this little town. It wasn't really a town. It was just like a little campground. That was a little short walk off the Appalachian Trail where you could go and they didn't have hot food, but they had food that you could buy and they had microwaves that they allowed hikers to warm food up in and had a couple yeah. of, you know, booths there, you know, those, those booths you see in gas stations and, and that kind of thing. And um, so yeah. we stayed there for a night and uh, resupplied, got mm-hmm. some food. And, but anyway, so we're sitting there eating something in the morning Mm -hmm. and there's a newspaper on the table and it's front page and it is a story about what happened and sure enough a guy named mike had been arrested or had been detained by all these different authorities they had found all these different ids Mm -hmm. on him from florida north carolina a couple other places and that mm-hmm. really that's all they had on him were these random IDs. They couldn't pin him down to anything else that he just might be one of those guys who lives out there. Mm-hmm. But the craziest thing about this article was that it had two pictures. It had a picture of Mike Pasta Water and a picture of Eric Rudolph side by mm-hmm. side. And I'm telling you, it was mm-hmm. 99.9% the same person. And, like, just enough for you to go, yeah, I don't think that is him. So, I now have confirmation that not only is what the crazy thing that I ran into, the crazy thing that Townsman's now told me, it's now been confirmed by a small-town newspaper. So then I touched base with my mom. Mm-hmm. Call home to say hello to the parents. (laughs) During my call, my mom lets me know that the FBI wants to talk to me in connection to my interaction with Eric Rudolph. Oh, no. (laughs) And we haven't talked since they dropped us off at the hotel. And and the motel. And so I'm like, "Um, well, let me tell you about what happened five minutes after we saw you or ten minutes after we saw you. And then let me tell you about what I read in a mm-hmm. newspaper where they use the journalist questions, who, what, when, where, why, how. Let me go ahead and guess mm-hmm. that you saw the words one million dollars and Dr. evil that thing. <laughs> and she said, well, hey, you know, the, the, oh, the, no. the FBI just wants to talk to you about it. Because who knows? Maybe your friend was lying. I was like, Mom, it was in the newspaper. He wasn't lying. It happened. And she's like, well, still, you just need to calm, you know, it's going to make me look bad. Like, what? what, what no. So, yeah, oh, God. So my mom wound up like being convinced that she heard clicks and pops on the phone and thought that the, she was being listened to. 
I've since talked to someone who works in the federal government. Oh, and they're bless. Like, no, they're like that's way too low level. There's no way no. they ever would have. No, they would have tapped your mom for what had happened to you. It's, it's like especially in a case oh, that they God. knew had already been debunked. But anyway, so back to Murphy, North Carolina. At this point in time, um, Murphy might have been the logical choice for Eric Rudolph's home base. Uh, rivers and lakes filled with fish. Lots of dumpsters behind stores and restaurants that backed up to the to one side of a river, giving him an escape down the bank. There were locals that were sympathetic and were enough new residents so that he wouldn't stick out. Um, his friendliness might have also helped. He just kind of would smile mm-hmm. at people. Reports suggest that people spotted him, but the one apparent, but the one posters apparently just didn't spring to mind. So Rudolph had developed a routine on the mm-hmm. deliveries to the restaurants and stores. Specifically, Rudolph had figured out when the vegetables were delivered, because <clears throat> he couldn't, he didn't have access to vegetables on the run, and so he figured mm-hmm. out when the yeah. restaurants would get their supply, their shipments and when they had cut up the vegetables and thrown away the bad ones and all that kind of stuff at night he would wait for the coast to be clear and then he would run down and he knew that this restaurant's dumpster would have this and then the next night this grocery store's dumpster would have this and so he just kind of ran it and also because he was hiding where he could see into murphy he had these different mm-hmm. hiding spots where he could see into town. So he just kind of figured out the patterns and just boom, that's how he was dumpster dive. And that's how he supplemented his staples because like we said, he had buried, uh, he liked to bury stuff. He had stolen mm-hmm. grain, oatmeal, soy, and all this different stuff. So he was actually eating pretty good. He just had to have water to, and, and, yeah. a fire, and a heat source to warm it up. And he was eating pretty good, so he just needed vegetables yeah. to supplement his diet. After he would dumpster dive, he would just he, there was a, there was a very short bridge. You can see it on a map if you look at it on Google Maps. When you um, and, and it's a very short bridge. He would just have to make it across, or if it was dry or it was summertime, sometimes he'd wade across in the river um, to 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 stay out of sight. But he mm-hmm. would always hike back up to where he hid out in a different snake-like pattern that didn't create a trail. Mm-hmm. They're pretty much... I, I, I've read several stories through the years. He had a few different camps, and I think they were kind of based on what the season was. And um, But he kind of... Uh, yeah. That makes and sense. And how much tree cover he would have at a certain amount of time and that kind of thing. The yeah. other thing was is that he kind of had like a central grocery store uh, of his own where it was kind of centrally located mm-hmm. to a few different things. And again, you hear all kinds of different stories, but... But he had, he, he had, again, buried 50-gallon barrels and had just filled them. And that's where he got these months' worth of... Uh, he would break into these silos um, that were around Murphy and just pack his backpack full and would just steal one night after another. But um, So th- this also leads, leads us to a subject that happens in, in, in Andrews and Murphy is that with all this FBI activity around there um, and all the anti-government sentiment that is in this area all of a sudden people were starting to talk about the new world order and there were some talks about um this fbi headquarters what was going to be temporary was going to be permanent one day because um of the new world order taking over in this area um rudolph claims that he almost set a bomb outside of the fbi headquarters uh building that was being used um but he was worried that he was his chances mm-hmm. were of getting caught were very high 
but later uh, later agents would find bomb-making materials that were about a football field away from the front door of this place. Okay. So on July 11, 1998, a health food store owner in western North Carolina told authorities that Rudolph had stolen six months' worth of food from his store and supplies and the pickup from his home, leaving five $100 bills as payment. Um, I remember after that incident, it was kind of a Richard Jewell with that as well, that maybe this guy hadn't had helped him. I can't remember if that was a real thing or not, but um, I do remember that one of the pickup trucks, either the pickup truck that was at his house, that, that, that was the Nissan that belonged to, to Rudolph, or this pickup truck that he stole from this guy's house, mm-hmm. one of them was dropped off near a campground that is accessed by the, that can access the Appalachian Trail through one of probably the most photographed trail signs outside of the northern and southern terminuses. It is a trail called Chunky Gal Trail. And I've heard of that. It was funny because yes. you said chunky earlier. <laughs> yeah, because I'm a chunky gal that hikes. <laughs> but it's, yeah, Chunky Gal Trail. I mean, I, of course, I took a picture. I, I had actually visited it when, as a kid um, when we stayed at that campground. Um, but uh, so there's a oh, okay. chance that actually if it had been the first time around, there's a chance that I walked past mm-hmm. Eric Rudolph's truck down, you know, obviously down uh, Chunky Gal Trail whenever I was hiking and it hadn't been discovered yet. So that area right there is Standing Indian. Um, there's a bunch of different areas right there that lead into this. Like People don't understand how vast the Nantahala National Forest is. It's huge. Um, we've talked about it in the Daniel Martin episode that 85% of the county of Jackson County is federally owned through either Nantahala National Forest or the federal government with uh, Great Smoky Mountains. But yeah, so it, it it's mm-hmm. you can disappear very easily into uh into the backcountry around here. Oh yeah. It's a lot like Pocahontas County for sure, mm. just to the north of me. So So I, I had I had a discussion with one local believer about the situation going on down there and you know, again, another not along just to not get, you know, punched. <laughs> yeah. I uh, told me there was a plan to have some kind of a false flag or at maybe after an actual catastrophe happens around the Atlanta area, that they would funnel all the people in the southeast towards this area, kind of like what you talked about before with the holding areas for the Trail of Tears, that they would move all these southern people who were fleeing yeah. the cities into these camps, internment camps. And that the New World Order was going to take over and the federal government was going to, you know, decide what was best for all of us. Um, There's even an article in one of the articles where I got a lot of this information that was written years later that was very comprehensive. Bill Hughes, who was the mayor of Murphy from 1997 to 2017, he said something about the Western Carolina regional airport between Murphy and Andrews, which is right along the highway as you're as you're driving between the two cities. Um, he said that, that a Learjet carrying a man with a briefcase would land just about every week while Rudolph was on the run. And then that's where the, the article leaves off with that. And it's like, wait, wait, what's that now? And I couldn't find anything else about it at all. But at the same time, 
if we got a $1 million ransom on this guy's head and he's one of the top 10 most wanted people in America, I can see a big wig from DC stopping by at this place where a Learjet could land and, you know, stepping yeah. off with a briefcase and being like, what's this, what's going on now? Um, so, you know, I, you know, yeah. I don't see it as a, a red flag, but, um, but other people did obviously. So I'll yeah. just go ahead and say that I finished hiking the Appalachian trail without any further air Rudolph incidents. Oh, uh, or I, I never saw Yay. the uh, thank you. I never saw the uh, the pasta water guy again. Um, I finished hiking in the first week <laughs> because pasta water's Eric. <laughs> uh, I finished hiking while my mom was out of town, but I um, with my grandmother and my grandmother was attending her. I believe it was her 60th high school reunion. Um, and so they were out of oh, town wow. and they were flying back to Raleigh. And I know the day they were flying back because it was October 14th, 1998. I know that because my dad and I are sitting at the gate back when you could still do that at airports. We're sitting at the gate yeah, watching probably CNN or whatever was on uh, at the gate. And that was right officially when they mm-hmm. officially charged Rudolph with the Olympic bombing. You know, at, at this point, he'd only been confirmed to be with the uh, the Alabama one since his uh, his license plate was caught. But now they were like, okay, we can confirm mm-hmm. that with taking that and taking this, it's him. So, yeah. Eric Rudolph would remain hidden for almost five more years until May 31st, 2003, when he was arrested in Murphy by rookie officer Jeffrey Postal of the Murphy Police Department behind a Save-A-Lot store. Rudolph was unarmed and did not resist arrest. Being a rookie might just be what led to Rudolph's capture. Reportedly, Rudolph would wait to watch the police cruise behind the strip mall and then there, there's like a, like a, basically like a Dollar General, this, this small off-brand market uh, uh, grocery store. Mm-hmm. A couple other things are in this strip mall. Yeah. So he got used to their routine, what they would do. So the, 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 the you know, the, the veteran cops would make one pass behind the, behind the save, uh, mm-hmm. save mart. Um, they would make one pass through, and that would be it. He knew he could then boom pop up. From it's it, it really helps to see this because there's this river that he can hide behind hide uh, at the, uh, at the bank and watch the cops go by, jump up, go to the d- dumpster, and then mm-hmm. run back to, to to the bank to hide if he needs to. Well, this guy yeah. instead of making it uh, just going back around the front, when he got to the end, he turned around to make one more pass. Nice. Didn't do what Rudolph was expecting. So Rudolph panicked and dove between two dumpsters. He was too far from the bank and dove between the dumpsters, hoping like maybe mm-hmm. he didn't see me, but he knew he had been seen. Cop stopped, told him to get yeah. out. He thought about running, and then he just stepped out and put up his hands like, yep, you got me. Um, according to local stories I had heard, they said that as soon as he came out, he just started just talking. And was just like almost relieved to have the story, like to be. I don't doubt that. Yeah, to have it off of his shoulders. To to you know he's I, been running. He, he could finally yeah. tell the truth to somebody. Um, you know, as, as horrible of what what he did, he finally had some kind of sense of relief and just just blah 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 just talked. Um, so. Oh, I'd say he was probably like this is just me guessing, but I would say he was probably just happy he was finally caught like that he didn't have to keep up the whole like yeah hiding running thing i don't think he had any like actual remorse no, he, he just 
was like, okay, I don't yeah. have to do this anymore. So, uh, so you know, it's just how it goes, you know, that, so that happened in May. So it wasn't until October 14th that he was actually officially charged with everything. Rudolph uh, released a statement mm-hmm. in which he explained his actions and rationalized them as the cause of anti-abortion and anti-gay activism. Rudolph, however, denied association with any right-wing extremist group, asserting that he always acted on his own. Oh, okay. So, sorry. <laughs> like, so uh, you know, that goes back to what you and I were talking about before. Like, what what spooked him to run the fourth time when he hadn't run before? When he had shown his face all over town, Burger King, yeah. Blockbuster, living it up, living it up in Murphy, Blockbuster, and Burger King. That's about as good as it gets in Murphy, yeah. North Carolina. I'm telling you. Um, there's a, there's a Walmart there now. Listen, I just, I hope he got, I hope he got epic diarrhea from that Burger King. It made for a messy first night. It's like, oh God. Oh, not not only am I busted for blowing up an abortion clinic, I now have got diarrhea. Great. Yeah. I hope he had horrible diarrhea. I'm just saying. So anyways. So we, we know about these. So we, so we, we wonder about things like that and, and you start to hear these stories about, people that were sympathetic and all that kind of stuff. And we know that there was a militia that was sympathetic mm-hmm. to him. We know that there were re- extremist religious groups that were, that were sympathetic to him. But I'm here to let you know about a couple of lesser known cases of people being sympathetic to Eric Rudolph. What? So in late May, 2003, the Nantahala Outdoor Center, which is right in the middle of the Nantahala uh, Gorge. It's been around since mm-hmm. 1972, I believe. Um, it's kind of it's it's mm-hmm. kind of known as like the first official whitewater paddling destination um, for tourists in the southeast. Um, it's also known as the Harvard of Whitewater Instruction. Um, they they teach people how to um, kayak, canoe, um, almost every single Olympics since 1974 when uh, whitewater sports were allowed in. Mm-hmm. There has almost always been a member of the Nantahala uh, Racing Club on the Olympic team. So um, so Nantahala Outdoor Center is oh, awesome. a pretty cool place down there. So, But it gets very busy around summertime because you know, that's when everybody wants to go you know, whitewater. So late May 2003, um, somewhere around Memorial Day weekend or so, the people who worked inside the store, which is um, right on the highway there, looks across the street at um, where the Appalachian Trail comes down from the south, um, Wesser Tower and that kind of thing. So um, so it's right on the trail. So they Mm -hmm. looked over. And across the street from was where the dumpster was, where all the trash would get picked up for the whole place. They saw some guy starting to kind of like go into yeah. the dumpster enclosure. And they're like, well, what's, what's that guy doing? And so they send somebody over to kind of tell him, or I think they called the maintenance guys and said, hey, there's somebody over there by the dumpsters. And so they went over and they told the guy like, hey, you know. What's going on? The guy's like, oh, yeah. And so they, they kind of got him out of there. He got out of the dumpster. Short time later, he's going back. They see him going back into mm-hmm. the dumpster enclosure. And they're like, all right. So they call the maintenance guys again. 
when I say these are maintenance guys, these aren't, when you think of NOC, you think of the Nanny Outdoor Center, you think of raft guides and mountain bike guides and all those kind of things. You, you think of college students. Um, the maintenance guys are yeah. from around there. They're not the kind of guys you just want to mess with at all. So this mm-hmm. time they sent all of them over, like everybody's going over. <laughs> so they all go over and they quote unquote mm-hmm. convince him to leave. And, uh, and so when the guy tells him that he doesn't have a car, mm-hmm. he basically told him, I, I've, I've seen them do this since then. Um, they pretty much said, well, that way goes to Bryson city. That way goes to Andrews and Murphy. Stick your thumb out and pick a direction. And they said, and if you don't, the cops are coming eventually. <laughs> and, uh, so they're like, so the guy walked over stuck his thumb out in the direction of Andrews and Murphy and got picked up and taken off. And now people hitchhiking around there wasn't uncommon because a lot of people hitchhike because they're going to paddle up and down the river around there. But, um, so yeah, so they kicked this guy out who looked a whole lot like, as somebody said, Freddie Mercury. And if you've seen any video of, uh, of Eric Rudolph getting busted, um, with his little pencil thin mustache, he definitely has some Freddie Mercury vibes going on because he's about, 80 pounds lighter than when he left all the other pictures you see of him and so he's got like this like mustache and like little goatee thing going on and uh does not look like eric rudolph the pictures you see of this kind of looks almost like he's been drinking a whole lot guy that's like you know 511 he's a little freddie mercury looking dude so then i i started working there a year later um in the well, not even a year later, like a few, uh, the next May. So in the fall of 2004, I, w- I worked at the Outfitters store when I first got there. And there was this uh, couple that would come in and they were both tall, both very good looking, always clutching a hot coffee with them. You know, they're always well dressed. It was like they looked at a Patagonia catalog and went, yes. <laughs> And went, that's the best line I've heard in a while to describe yups, is they looked at a Patagonia catalog and went, yes, <laughs> to all the things. Every one of them. But, um, so, turns out oh, they were, um, God. they were from Atlanta, um, <laughs> and, but they had a vacation cabin in the Nanahala Gorge, mm. and Atlanta isn't, but a, you know, it's a couple hours, depending on where, where you live and work. Um, it's, it's just a couple hours from the gorge, but, uh, so they live just a few miles upstream from NOC. And, um, so it turns out one of the weeks that they had come up and we had seen them and we got kind of got to know them. I can't remember their names, but they were a nice couple and, uh, they would just walk around, look all the expensive stuff. And, and so they were like, uh. Oh, we needed to tell you about this. So when they left one, they left the store one time. As they were going home, there was a roadblock across the the highway. Mm-hmm. It's a very two lane highway that runs through Nanahala Gorge. It was right mm-hmm. in front of their driveway to their house, and their driveway was like on the left hand side as you're heading towards Murphy. And so they're like, oh. uh, and that the cops, you know, were like, "What's going?" You know, they told them they said, "Hey, we we live right over there." Looked up that. <laughs> After a while, the cops were like, okay, well, um, you can go up there, but don't come back down uh, for the next few hours. And they're like, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So they get up to their house, and they can look across the valley, 
and uh, okay. they could see some police activity going on in a cabin that they kind of knew was over across the hill, but they didn't really know much about it. They they actually knew the landlord, mm-hmm. but they didn't know anything about the person who lived there. They didn't, you know, but anyway, after a while, they could see the police activity start to die down mm-hmm. over there, and they saw the landlord's pickup truck. So they said, well, he's over there, and they said they saw the last cop car leave, and it had been a few hours. They're like, let's go over there and see if we can talk to him. So they go over there. And when they get over to the place, he's like, yeah, come check this out. And he showed them, like, places, like, where they've been, like, dusting for fingerprints and that kind of thing. And the one one distinct thing was where she had had, like, her PC mm-hmm. on, like, on the countertop. They had dusted all around it and then taken her computer. And so there was, like, a perfect rectangle where they had dusted and then st- took her computer. So when they okay start talking to the landlord... He's like, you're never going to believe this. So what she did was she left her house in the Nantahala Gorge. <clears throat> this was his tenant. And mm-hmm. drove into Asheville, North Carolina. Pulled out a pistol after midnight sometime. Pulled out a pistol. Okay. In front of the Planned Parenthood in town. Shot into an obviously empty, closed-down Planned Parenthood. Shot the glass door. Put the gun down. Turned and called the cops from a payphone. And waited to come be arrested. So this led the po- cops back to her house. And so... Yeah, because she thinks she's a martyr. On her back mm. porch was a red light bulb and a green light bulb. And they could, and the, the cops had taken that. And then you could see the leftover rings of where there had been canned goods, Mm -hmm. like canned beans or whatever, that were now gone. But the rust was left over from where these Mm -hmm. cans had been around the railing. Well, the red light bulb was for whenever the coast wasn't clear. Mm -hmm. But the green light bulb was for Rudolph to know he was able to come down and come grab some canned goods and maybe even possibly come in and hang out. So... This person was helping Eric Rudolph. Please tell me she was charged as an I, accessory. I don't, you know what? I don't know the story because that's one of those stories that nobody else, like nobody else, has heard that story before. And I mean, I I, I worked down a few miles away from where it happened. Mm-hmm. No one told us. No one told us about that. We didn't know about that. So I mean, so I mm-hmm. I, I just wonder. You know, nobody ever said a word about this guy who had five IDs yeah. and was. Hiding on the Appalachian Trail, obviously from something. So that so that was a crazy story from the the Atlanta Yuppies. A little while later, I got a desk job yeah. at NOC, <laughs> and I know it's everyone's dream to go to the Harvard of Whitewater paddling and to work mm-hmm. behind a desk. But um, it paid more, so I took the job. Um, it literally paid like pennies more, so I took the job. <laughs> so. I, Across the hall from me, when I first got there, was a woman who had been there for like 25 years. Her her office was pretty much like crystals. Like when you think of someone who would work at a whitewater paddling center in the middle of nowhere, and you think of you know, yeah, that, that that's who was across the hall from me forever. Mm-hmm. And then her position changed, and she went somewhere else, and they put the exact opposite of that person across the hall from me. You know, after a little while, I kind of like one day was kind of like, oh, hey, let me tell you this crazy story. These two beautiful yuppies from Atlanta told me one time. And so it was one of those where 
as you're telling the story, yeah. like she wasn't even doing the nod along to me. She was just looking at me like, yeah, so. And so when it's over with, she tells me a story <laughs> about how he had broken into her grandmother's house twice while he was out on the run. And the second time. Oh, my God. Like the first time she was kind of like, some things are missing. And they didn't really think much of it. And the second time, mm -hmm. he took some things as well. And this time, he left like $2 and a scrawled note that said, apologies or I'm sorry, ER. <clears throat> and I was just like, so what'd your grandma do? What the she was hell? Like, what do you mean what'd she do? And I was like, I mean, like, did she tell the cops? She's like, no. Why would she do that? So just got to think about like how many of those people, how many people did that happen to? So one last thing I'll tell you um, about people that we knew while we were working at NOC, we met somebody who was a college professor in outdoor recreation. And he took a film crew from the NBC Atlanta on a trip to Eric Rudolph's final hideout, the one that they had found. And so I, I didn't go there, but he told us about the hike. It's our old friend Rhododendron comes back um, from Daniel Martin. Um, and as we said in, in that, that it's like spider webs made out of thorns. <laughs> um, even though there's not thorns on Rhododendron, it still might as well be. And yeah. so um, you had to crawl on your belly almost practically straight uphill using the you know the base of these rotos yeah. as your handholds to climb your way up belly on the ground you know pulling your way up past whatever you're going through snakes whatever to finally get up and he had and he had basically dug out this flat spot and put flat stones down and had like a patio that he could look, he could sit at mm -hmm. and look down and see right down to downtown Murphy where the FBI headquarters were. He could see all the movements around Murphy from this spot. And what he had also done was it was dug into the side of this rock. Like I said, it's just, you know, rock jutting out everywhere in this, in this gorge. Well, there was like a cutout at the bottom of the rock that he could roll under and hide if he heard a helicopter or a plane mm -hmm. or something like that. And he could just lay on his side underneath this rock. Jeez. And uh, he and the film crew spent the night out there. And uh, it was just cicadas. It was just... Just going crazy. Yeah, like, just imagine the nightmare of having to just be around cicadas every night like that. But um, but he was, he was able to see right into the HQ, and they never saw him at all. So that brings to the end uh, Eric Rudolph's uh, uh, hunt and, and the stories that I know for the most part. Um, so on April 8, 2005, the U.S. Justice Department announced that Rudolph had agreed to a plea deal uh, in which he would avoid possible death sentence. And he did this because he, uh, he pled guilty to all the charges against him, and he also disclosed the location of, again, he had had all these weapons caches where he had buried barrels and barrels of weapons. He had over 250 pounds of dynamite buried. Jeez Louise. Holy cow. He had one already assembled bomb. 
He had detonators and other bomb making materials and guns. Um, what I didn't say, I, I started to say it in the uh, in the description. Then I realized I was giving something away. Um, he was very close to that headquarters. Like I said, um, he when it was over with, he told authorities where those bomb making materials could be found that were a hundred yards away from the front door of the place, and um, he had taken sympathy um, mm-hmm. as he took as he watched them. He had begun to become sympathetic towards I mean, one of the one of the FBI agents, mm-hmm. and decided against bombing it because of this guy. Mm-hmm. And it's such a weird story. Uh, there's a whole documentary on it. But so he, he he was very close to bombing it. But he also knew he would probably be caught if if if, if that happened because mm-hmm. the dogs would catch him. After all of that, um, Eric Rudolph is currently living out his sentence at ADX Florence, Colorado Supermax Prison. ADX Florence is possibly the world's most secure prison, holding some of our country's worst enemies. Eric Rudolph's neighbors include the Boston Bomber, the Underwear Bomber, the Shoe Bomber, mm-hmm. the, 1990, the 1994 World Trade Bomber, Terry Nichols, oh. who was an accomplice of the Oklahoma City Bomber, mm-hmm. and the cherry on top, El Chapo is there. Shut up! That's where El Chapo is? <laughs> yep, El Chapo is there. Um, nice. I was pretty sure that uh, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, was there, but um, apparently uh, about four years ago, he was moved to a high-security hospital on the East Coast because he had some illness that uh, pretty much, like, he had, like, he was, like, all but in a coma or something like that. I'm not really sure, so Ted's not doing mm-hmm. so hot. Um, his other neighbor... Wait, he's he, still alive? Yeah, yeah, I looked it up. I, I had to make sure he's still alive. He's still alive in a. Why a did why in my brain did prison. I think Ted Kaczynski was dead? Because you might be thinking of Timothy McVeigh. I knew Timothy McVeigh was dead. He's dead in well, the door now. So yeah, so Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, also was a past resident of the ADX Florence, but he had a different exit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Am I laughing at someone's death? Yes. Yes, I am. Because he deserves <laughs> it. This is an appropriate time to laugh at somebody's death. It's Timothy McVeigh's death yeah, yeah, that yeah. we're laughing I was at. Like, yeah, you're like, did I laugh? I'm like, did I just do a take to Zoom? Like, <laughs> oh, gosh. How we kind of know some of Rudolph's, um, where his brain was, is because uh, he released a book called Between the Lines of Drift, The Memoirs of a Militant. His brother helped him publish this book, and in April, just two months after he had released it, the U.S. US Attorney General seized $200 in sales to help begin to pay off the $1 million that Rudolph owes in restitution (laughs) to the state of Alabama. Um, The book has since been republished and has been made available through the army of god website ew so now instead of running around his beloved north carolina mountains rudolph now spends 23 hours a day in a 7 by 12 cell good circling back for a moment um after he was dropped as a suspect in 1996 richard jewell filed libel suits against the nbc news the atlanta journal constitution cnn the new york post and piedmont college a past prof- a past employer who had talked about him, um, defamed him um, in an interview. Jewell wound up settling out of court in each case, except for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, with the newspaper eventually winning 
in 2011. Oh, wow. NBC settled for 500000 and other public apologies in addition to Jay Leno's followed. Mm. In 2006, Jules said the lawsuits were not about money and that the vast majority of the settlements went to lawyers or taxes. He said the lawsuits were about clearing his name. Uh, in 2007, Jules' wife found him dead on, the, on their bedroom floor. He had died of, a heart, of heart disease with complications from diabetes. He was 44 years old. Hold up. And that's in 2007? Yeah. Why in my brain did I think he was so much older? Like, like when this happened, when the actual like Olympic Park bombing happened. He like, looked 44 in 96. Yeah. I legit thought he was in his 40s then. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's insane. Wow. After he passed, his wife said that each anniversary of the 1996 Olympic bombing, Richard Jewell would slip away to Centennial Park, usually at night when no one was looking, to place a rose in a card where Alice Hawthorne had, was killed by Rudolph's pipe bomb. In 2005, I found out that one of my co-workers at the Nantahala Outdoor Center had gone to the Nantahala School with Eric Rudolph. Oh. One day, he and I were working together on a ropes course... Um, like a challenge course for people who don't know. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, there's a lot of safety checks and setup goes into having a ropes course or an alpine tower. So you really are pretty focused beforehand. So afterwards, he and I were putting away all the gear and having some small talk, and I kind of brought up the Nanahala school and and he was like, yeah, well, you know, Rudolph was only there for a short time. You know, you know, he was gone before he was 18. Yeah. And he said, uh, he's like, that's when he would attend. He wasn't really good for attending school. But I had to ask him, I said, so what was he like? Mm-hmm. And my coworker thought for a bit. And he said, he wasn't as tall back then, but he was a hell of a basketball player. <laughs> That's a true story. That's the takeaway. <laughs> He's a hell of yeah. a basketball player. <laughs> so, that's the that's that's the uh let's see <sighs> uh 3 hours and 20 minute version of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, um uh I'm just going to go ahead and say you can find me at Box Holiday uh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I think that's all that I have now. Um, I can tell that my voice is going only on. Fans. <laughs> only fans. Yeah, my, my only fans. Yeah. Only fans for the feet pics. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, and then you can find my two pod, my two other podcasts, the Pox and Puss podcast, celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Yay! Um, yeah. Uh, should be an episode out around the 15th of this month. Probably be on the... 15th is a Friday, so probably won't do it. Or Saturday, I can't remember. Um, and so we'll have it out in the middle of the month. And then you can also find Pox Walks or Pox Talks as an episode that I'm getting ready to do about stand-up comedy. Hey. Um, but uh, what about you? Um, you can find me at hey that Nikki N-I-K-K-I, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can also listen to my previous podcast I did with my good friend Kirsten 
Uh, the Appalachian Crime Trail, we're available on any podcasting platform. It's all old episodes. We have not recorded in a while. Um, all our socials are still up. Mm, occasionally, I might post on those for the Appalachian Crime Trail. Um, you can also find In the Pines on your favorite social media um, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at In the Pines Pod. And I think that's all of it, right? <laughs> well, some people go into the woods to make memories. And some people go into the woods to be forgotten. Bye, Goodbye. y'all. Bye.